0: And colleagues to Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio. I'm your host, Karen Tate, and uh, uh, thank you for joining me for this uh, special show at this special time. Uh, If you're new to the show, I'm so glad you're here to get to know me and uh, the wonderful guests that uh, uh, have been on the show over the years. And if you're a regular, I certainly thank you for your listener loyalty. Now, uh, I want to give a quick shout out uh, to uh, the the group Zingaya out of Las Vegas, Uh, and uh, you were hearing uh, one of their cuts called Nomads Land, uh, which is one of my favorites. So uh, today uh, the topic of uh, the show is strengthening our muscles of empowerment, and. You've got me. <laughs> There's no guest uh, today, and that was uh, intentional, uh, because I wanted to share with you uh, a talk that I gave recently at the Museum of Women in Irvine, California. Uh, it was so well received there by the men and women in attendance, I thought I would uh, share it to my listeners, uh, unable to get to Southern California, and thereby um, you know, reach a wider audience. Uh, the, top, the, the talk uh, was part of a series uh, titled Strengthening Empower," Power, and uh, the talk was specifically titled uh, Strengthening Our Muscles of Empowerment. It fit perfectly with this time of year as the flowers are stretching and strengthening to break ground or to break through the snow and bloom into their fullest potential. Because we can be like those flowers the mother provides as role models each year. Likewise, goddess values also provide a new narrative. Specifically in the talk, um, I refer to uh, knowledge being about power, and hoarding or hiding information and knowledge is the equivalent of tyranny. We must realize that um, that there is an agenda at play here to control what we know, what we think, how we act, and ultimately what we do. Well, you probably know that, uh, but you know there are some things we can begin to do right now to counter the efforts of those who would want to control the narrative um, or how we think or how we act so i'm glad you're tuning in with me now and i hope some of the uh, thoughts i'm going to share with you um, might uh, sprout some new ideas of inspiration and i hope you will uh, share this talk with your friends uh, so that they might give it a listen uh, or you know introduce them to voices of the sacred feminine we're always looking uh, to expand our umbrella and increase our family of listeners so here we go Uh, Please uh, get comfortable, Uh, grab a snack or a glass of wine or a cup of tea and uh, uh, give a listen. And as always, I love to hear your comments. So uh, please uh, get in touch and uh, let me know if anything I've shared with you today, uh, you know, resonates. (sighs) Who here listening has heard the statement, knowledge is power? Well, that's a statement usually attributed to Francis Bacon, a nobleman from Britain in the 1500s. Here is also a statement that I like even better. It goes like this. Knowledge is power. Information is power. The secreting or hoarding of knowledge or information may be an act of tyranny camouflaged as humility. Well, that's from Robin Morgan. She's an American poet and member of the American women's movement. Emphasis in that quote on the phrase, hoarding of knowledge or information may be an act of tyranny. Well, today I want to shower you with some ideas and thoughts, uh, some of which uh, we don't hear our leaders saying in public uh, very often, if at all, but we should. I want to warn you right now, some of the things I'm going to say may shock you. Although, if you're a listener, I think you're accustomed to some of my crazy ideas or good ideas, uh, uh, depending on how you look at them. But I think uh, even if some of the things unsettle you, I believe you can take it, or else you wouldn't be a listener of this show. You're here in my audience, after all. Well... You're already a part of the cognitive minority if you are. The people ahead of the curve waiting for the rest of the world to catch up. You probably try to resist groupthink and herd mentality. You're the kind of person I'm aiming these ideas at. So let's get to it. Be assured the people who hoard the knowledge actually have an agenda. I'm sure of it the agenda might not be in your best interest either. It's not all for one and one for all with so many of these people. Few care if all our boats float because, you know what, a desperate population is a population that's easier to control. A desperate underclass will accept less pay, poor treatment, and all of that means more money in the pocket of the CEO. There was an article I read recently that some of these CEOs are making a thousand times more than their workers. It used to be a few hundred times more than their workers, but it's getting to be closer to a thousand times more than their workers. A demoralized population is easier to control until it gets out of control. I think this desperation, hopelessness, lack of security, that all has a lot to do with the opioid epidemic as people try to numb themselves from the pain and hopelessness of their lives. I don't know about you, but I resent the hoarding of knowledge, this parceling out of information as some authority sees fit. I resent not knowing about Goddess, for instance, until I was 30 years old. Who decided to keep... The idea and history or history of the sacred feminine from me and you, and why? Who benefited? You probably know the answer, but I think you get my point. Speaking of knowledge, we used to have the fairness doctrine. The Fairness Doctrine was a policy of the United States Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC, which was introduced in 1949 that required the holders of broadcast licenses both to present controversial issues of public importance and to do so in a manner that was in the Commission's view honest, equitable, and balanced. Well, I think we know that is gone. Journalism used to be what's considered the fourth estate, protecting democracy, trying to keep things in check. Well, that is fast disappearing, if not gone, in most corners of media. Now they have cable networks dedicated to outright omitting, distorting, lying, and distracting us. They do a good job of scaring us and dividing us, too. It makes it easier to exploit us and engage in legalized theft of our futures and our treasury. You know, maybe it's obvious, maybe it's not, but the people holding the power control the narrative. And what I mean by that is what we focus on, what we know, what we learn, and who's to blame. Do they even teach civics in school anymore? I'm not so sure. What do most of us learn in school about economics? Well, I can tell you I grew up in the New Orleans region of the of the south, uh, southern portion of the United States. Um, the only thing I learned about economics uh, through grade school and high school was read the book Animal Form, and it will shed light on the sins of communism. And that was it. Well, I've interviewed uh, economist Richard Wolfe, who you might have seen on PBS. You might have heard him here on Voices of the Sacred Feminine. And in our interview, he spoke about how even at the college level, if a professor wanted to get tenure, they could only extol the virtues of capitalism. The benefits of socialism and communism when they weren't under a totalitarian regime was not something we learned about. Even today, if we talk about the benefits to workers under socialism and uh, communism, we sense we'd better do it in a hushed voice. If someone hears us say we should give real democratic socialism a try, you know, like they have in those red commie Scandinavian countries where the quality of life is ranked best on the planet, well, that kind of crazy talk is sheer blasphemy. It's unpatriotic, even un-American. Well, when did it become un-American to want our tax dollars to improve our quality of life? Who started that narrative, and when did that become gospel? And by the way, those Scandinavian countries, they're ranked in the top five of of happiest countries to live in, and the United States has dropped down to 18 Now, you may already knew this, but I'll admit I didn't. Do you know, as early as the 20s and the 30s, academics and political activists in Europe associated nature and goddess with socialism, Marxism, egalitarianism, and communism, while they associated capitalism, patriarchy, and Christianity as being in alignment and in sync? I don't know about you, but I wish I'd learned that a long time ago. Did you learn it was the socialists, the communists, and the social witness of Christianity of his time that helped push FDR to create Social Security and all the other benefits of the social safety net that's now in tatters and Republicans want to destroy completely? And I'm saddened that the only goddess scholar I could find that connects some of these dots of politics and economics was monica sue and the great cosmic mother why haven't our feminist foremothers had the courage to teach us this were they too busy trying to get past being barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen and into the workplace to tell us that capitalism was exploitation and if left unchecked like it is today it would destroy us and the planet did they even know did they realize I should say I totally respect my mentor, Rianne Eisler, who's talking about uh, producing more of a caring economics uh, in our country and around the world where we change things, and Genevieve Vaughan, who talks about gift economy also. But I really think we have to have this conversation about the benefits of democratic socialism because. Christianity is no longer the strong and influential social witness it was in FDR's day. Did you know in the book, One Nation Under God, author Kevin Cruz makes the case that industrialists poured money into silencing the church, where progressives were fighting for fairness and equality and supported FDR's New Deal, and instead these uh, these uh, industrialists, these corporatists funded a new brand of Christianity that we have today that conflates faith with free enterprise and American exceptionalism. Maybe that's where we get the prosperity gospels from. You know, maybe this is why we don't hear as many Christians talking about the values of Jesus to help the poor and look out for our neighbors. Instead, we get this rugged individualism and this work ethic of 60-hour work weeks. That's supposed to be uh, noble. Myself, I believe if we truly walk our talk, God of spirituality is the new and true sacred feminine liberation theology that Christianity once was. If we truly believe in partnership, equality, peace, fairness, if we believe goddess cultures were egalitarian and we want to see that again, if we don't want sexuality tainted by shame or women prevented from having control over their bodies, if we believe we have a responsibility to protect the planet and the vulnerable living among us, if we believe the world should be organized in a fashion to benefit us all, not just a few, these are the goddess ideals that can change the world, change the narrative. And you know what? We are her voice. So we have to take responsibility for our own education. We need to be the ones sharing this knowledge and show the relevance of goddess spirituality because I bet most people haven't a clue who we are or what we think. Sadly, even within our own ranks, many never connect the dots between goddess politics and morality or if they do it might be about environmentalism you know that they feel safe talking about but not so many of the other issues so what do we do to change the narrative well we certainly can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result so let's start with getting beyond goddess 101 and move on to goddess 2.0 and have the courage to take teaching goddess spirituality to the next level let's begin to connect the dots between goddess spirituality culture politics and economics let's start new narratives and traditions and it can be fun it doesn't have to be boring you know your eyes won't glaze over for instance i was talking here on my show uh not that long ago last month about Valentine's Day and Christmas becoming more about conforming and being uber consumers rather than something meaningful. And I suggested the ideas I'm sharing with you today. Well, you know, one of my listeners emailed me and said at his college, Valentine's Day was turned into a full week when the narrative on campus became all about treating each other with kindness and compassion and with activities to support the new Valentine's Day theme. So instead of holidays on the calendar that are basically empty and mostly about spending money what if we instead within our own circles eventually expanding outward institute a pay it forward day okay there's another idea you know uh, in addition to the uh the holiday thing what if we uh did a uh had a had a day called get to know your neighbor day Or a volunteer weekend instead of just looking to volunteer around Thanksgiving and Christmas? What if we had a kindness and compassion week separate from Valentine's Day? Well, okay, some more ideas. Thinking about women in black history month, um, what if we had a learn about a different religion month? You know, uh, that would certainly, um, I, I think, take the fear out of what, you know, some religions, um, you know, might be about and and maybe even expand awareness of what these religions are so people don't go around with disinformation about other religions. What if we had an Honor Your Mentor Day? And you know what, while we're talking about this, why isn't Election Day a holiday if we really want people to go vote? Because you know what? The people controlling the narrative, so many of them don't want the people to vote. Mahatma Gandhi said, politics are sacred. No doubt because politics are a reflection of our morality. So let's act like it. You know, if we had a come together day, the Beatles even provide the theme song. Okay, I told you it could be fun. But you know what? There's no money in it really to do these sorts of things I'm talking about, but doesn't doing this in our schools, our churches, our social circles set a tone or promote different values? I think it really does. I know here, uh, you know, where I gave the talk uh, at the Goddess Temple in Irvine, which is also the Museum of Women, you know, they have been very innovative with new ideas to promote new values and ideas. And I think we have to give ourselves permission to do the very same things. We have the courage to cast off the values that the media uh, or even uh, some institutions would tell us um, You know, are the important ones because sometimes they aren't. They're not in our best interest. So, getting back to knowledge is power, we know history was written by the conquerors, and that uh, means usually white Christian men. In fact, the folks in Texas who decide what goes in the history books even want to leave out people like Thomas Jefferson and accomplishments of minorities, and they don't even want to teach the real facts of the Civil War. They want to say the Civil War wasn't about slavery. They have an agenda. So we never learn about the contributions of other groups of people, and that helps devalue these other genders and peoples. You know, not that I condone British Empire. Far from it. You know, colonialism was evil, is evil. But I'll just mention, um, you know, that we don't know about the famous female archaeologist, spy, and adventurer, Gertrude Bell. Gertrude Bell, Google Gertrude Bell. And if you'd rather watch a movie about her, Nicole Kidman played Gertrude Bell in uh, a film you can see on Netflix called Queen of the Desert. You know, whether we were for what she promoted or not, we should know about Gertrude Bell. Have a conversation about the accomplishments a woman, you know, back in uh, early history. uh, You know, we should know about her and, and what she did. She actually helped uh, Britain and Britain's allies figure out how they were going to carve up the Middle East now whether it was a good or a bad idea she was very instrumental at a time when women were relegated to the kitchen and having babies recently uh, I also learned about the African American women uh, of, of uh, NASA in Hidden Figures I'm sure you did too we didn't know about those woman, women uh, until that movie came out This year I learned about a Mexican businessman who who saved 40,000 Jews uh, from uh, the Nazi gas chambers. You know, why don't kids learn about Howard Zinn's History of the United States in school? That's an incredible book. You know, we don't hear about the history of the country from the subjugated and the oppressed. We only hear about the version the conquerors want us to hear. So women... Black and brown-skinned people, the indigenous and immigrants, we never hear their story. And this is important. I believe uh, there, is, you know, there is little reality or transparency um, because they don't want us to know how things really were. I believe that's hushed, so we're never, um, we, we never hold ourselves accountable as uh, people in this country. You know, um, we have a, a, we've justified everything the country's done. You know, we have a rationale for everything. Rather, if we looked at the reality um, of our history, we wouldn't be able to justify so many of the things we justify. And we certainly might not be so quick to uh, beat the drum for American exceptionalism. And, you know, when we do this, when we, just follow, you know, the narrative that the conquerors, uh, that the um, uh, the corporatists, you know, that the uh, you know the rich and powerful. Uh, you know, when we just follow that that their lead, it enables us, you know, our country, our collective conscience, uh, to continue to delude ourselves with sanitized versions of history that promote uh, American domination and exceptionalism that way we keep the status quo in power instead of having shared power and shared equality even when polls show the rest of the world sees our country as the biggest threat on the planet with all our bullets and bombs predator capitalism and the interference and the business of other countries think about that you know how the rest of the world sees us you know, they say we spend more than 12 times uh, as, as other countries combined on the military-industrial complex. And now we've privatized war, you know. Uh, so the CEOs of these companies that provide the bullets and bombs, um, you know, they're the guys making a 1,000 times more than their workers, and they're wasting our tax dollars. You know, it used to be uh, the government hired companies that had the lowest bid, uh, because they were trying to be, you know, uh, careful with our tax dollars. Well, that's out the window, too. But anyway, let's let's get back to another, uh, you know, some other thoughts that I want to share with you. Uh, German psychologist Eric Fromm wrote about having and being, or having versus being. You know, we're all conditioned and brainwashed to be about having. What can we acquire? We measure ourselves by our assets. We conflate greed with pride rather than shame or a disease. We're even commodities selling ourselves on the job market. Fromm asks if we ever know who we really are and what we really like because we've been pitched marketing campaigns most of our lives, leaving so many of us with a big hole in our soul. Well, that may try to fill You know, in in that hole, Um, many try to fill with things and money, maybe fancy cars, maybe cosmetic surgery, maybe big houses, diamond rings, dozens of shoes. Well, imagine if we based our society instead on being rather than assets, And because being is a concept which is suffused with love. It's filled with the spirit of caring and proper regard for humanity. Talk about a different narrative, right? It would encourage providing people with a pleasant sufficiency, which is being experimented with in lots of places now. As a matter of fact, did you hear in Stockton, California, they're experimenting with providing people a stipend to ensure they have a roof over their head and food? They've already been doing it in Norway with great success. Now, before you start thinking, oh, God, more welfare, because I know some people think that way, even though most of our tax dollars go to corporate welfare to make the 1% richer, imagine if you didn't have the constant pressure of keeping a roof over your head and food on the table and this stipend could give you breathing room, which is a privilege only the rich enjoy today. Well, what could you do with that breathing room? You could go to college Um, You could finish college with with, with a lot less stress. You could pursue your passion. You could get away from an abusive spouse. You would have a cushion to look for a better job. Single mothers would have paid daycare as they do in Scandinavian countries. Do you know in Iceland they passed a law that men can't be paid more than women without the company being fined? You know, those people in the Scandinavian countries are so far ahead of us. We have to start putting empathy over greed, and I would just love to see us all spread the hashtag, greed is a disease. Can we do that, listeners? Can we start a movement, hashtag greed is a disease? If you want to do it, please tell me, and we'll see if we can get that to go viral. Also, uh, you know, getting back to California and what they're doing right here in San Francisco, they're taxing the rich to pay for free community college for average people. That starts in May of this year. Remember when we said the way California goes, so goes the country? Well, maybe with San Francisco and Stockton engaging in these experiments, California may once again show the country the way. And here are some other ideas that have nothing to do with money, nothing to do with money at all. But um, what if we put the same importance on rest, gratitude, and mindfulness, or yoga and meditation as we put on brushing our teeth, and they just become our regular everyday routine? Well, I know they're doing innovative things at companies like Google, but I'm talking across the board to promote better ideas than workaholism and you know uh, I know some of you know I talk about this occasionally and one of you I want to thank you uh, for sending me the email uh, that had a link in it that showed that the police in Canada now are starting their day using meditation I don't know how widespread it is I don't remember but some places these ideas are starting to break through imagine if the police all started their day with meditation. Wouldn't their attitude be different? Wouldn't how they deal with people be different? Wouldn't the decisions they make be different? But that goes for all of us, including our bosses. You know, we could have break rooms where it's part of the workday to engage engage in these practices, or we could start work at 10 a.m. instead of 8 a.m. so we could do things like this before we even leave home. How might that change people's brains and how they behave and think in the world every day? You know, in Sweden, they have uh, in their culture the morning and afternoon break when everyone gets together to socialize and eat cake. Yes, 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 it's a Swedish thing. It's called a fika break. F i k a. Well. You know, you've probably heard in the Netherlands it's common to have a four-day work week and six weeks of vacation. So I'd like to say when, how, and why did the narrative begin here in the United States? It was a thing of pride to spend our lives working instead of enjoying our families and time away from work. Why is it noble to work a 50- or a 60-hour work week? Why do some people wear that like a, a badge of honor? It's masochistic. You know, uh, Foremother uh, Carol Christ, um, she spoke of the spirit of generosity being a living remnant of the ancient Cretan egalitarian matriarchal traditions of gift-giving. A local church near me, in that theme, in that vein, a local church near me uh, has, has what they call Give Sunday once a month, where people bring things they want a gift. You come and you get what you need and nice stuff you know, that you don't really need that's cluttering, cluttering your house that someone else might really be able to use. So there's, there's a new narrative, Gift Sunday. Or what if the narrative was mind over matter uh, as part of our everyday reality? And equally important, why isn't mind over matter something we're taught from the time we can comprehend the concept Getting back to who controls the information we consume, physicist Bruce Rosenblum in Quantum Enigma wrote, and I quote, presenting this material to non-scientists is the intellectual equivalent of allowing children to play with loaded guns, unquote. So imagine that. Teaching us this important concept of mind over matter or our practicing this important concept is something to be feared. Same with. Well, before I get to that, let me just explain that a little bit more. We know um, our mind uh, helps us, uh, you know, our mind creates thoughts, and our thoughts help us create real things. You know, this mind over matter idea. That tells us how powerful we are. But yet, the narrative is if if, uh, everyone knew that, it would be like having children playing with loaded guns. That bugs me. And I also want to say something about hallucinogens. You know, they've been banned, even though they expand our minds, can help us with mental health, and they enhance our creativity. So the message I get out of that was the status quo, the powers that be, don't want us expanding our minds, you know. They would rather have us uh, in this opioid crisis uh, rather than legalizing marijuana to uh, instead to help people with their mental health, you know, or enhance our creativity, you know, I, and I'm not talking about you know the idea. I, I you know I, I'm I'm I am not trying to suggest that we should all go around taking hallucinogens and uh, while we're driving in the car down the street, um, you know, I'm I'm talking about in a controlled way so that we could expand our minds, um, heal ourselves, heal, heal our, our, our mental wounds and enhance our creativity, you know, because it can be done in a safe and sacred manner, um, in a controlled environment. That's what I'm talking about. So I'm going to end this talk, um, with the idea of linguistic imperialism. And I want to thank Corvia for sending me, um, information about this, because I think it's really important, and it fits in with this idea of who's controlling the narrative, how we view things. Um, It's not just what we say and what we don't say and teach. It's how we do both. Robin Wall Kimmerer, a professor of biology, compared the language of her indigenous ancestors with the pilgrims, who had grammar for personhood, which confers value. Things that we refer to as it are not persons and can become commodities. So think about it. A 500-year-old tree, can you can just go chop it down to make way for a strip mall. A lion in Africa whose head some jerk wants to hang on his wall so he can feel like a big man. An ocean that's so full of plastic and becoming so hot and acidic, nothing will live in it if we don't stop using it as a trash dump the environment that's heating up causing ecosystems to die and arctic life to starve to death <clears throat> western language white man's language diminishes the beingness of the rest of the world and allows it to become something bought and sold and which has no rights well that even includes women and children in some parts of the world Professor Kimmerer challenges us to instead use language as a tool of revolution, and I wholeheartedly agree. We cannot be passive as that beautiful polar bear dies of starvation, or that majestic lioness is shot dead for some jerk's ego. They are more than an it, they are not a commodity, they have value. So let's be the people who plant the seeds for new ideas, new language, new politics, new government, new relationships, new holidays, new values. We can do it. Knowledge is power and it sets us free. Julia Stonehouse was on my show a few weeks ago talking about how the misconception about conception helped set the stage for patriarchy. People once thought women's wombs were mere incubators for the male seed. The woman's role in reproduction was diminished. She was irrelevant. We have to reject ideas of anti-intellectualism that are so pervasive. Pat, the roving reporter for my show here, uh, sent me an article recently about great news that there are over 250 scientists and academics running for office in 2018. That's more than ever before to help counter this anti-intellectual wave that's tried to drown truth and facts and shackle people's minds and allow them to act against their own self-interests. I say we, us advocates, step up and be a part of the change Let's plant seeds to grow a beautiful garden that becomes the world we want for ourselves and our children and our grandchildren. Let us be her voice, her hands, her feet, and her essence. Let us weave the threads of facts with new ideas into a glorious tapestry and change ourselves, our community, and our world. Well, um, That was the talk I gave, and um, uh, I recorded another talk uh, that I gave earlier in the year. Uh, You can find it in the archives about goddess values changing the world. And uh, there were other ideas there as well. And, you know, I'll continue with this series. I'll probably have another talk in May and maybe another talk uh, in October. Uh, I also invite you to go to my YouTube channel, and uh, you can see other talks that I've given there. Uh, when you get to YouTube, just put uh, my name, Karen Tate, uh, in the search box, and uh, lots of different things will come up. So um, that being said, uh, I think, um, you know, that, uh, that will be it for me today uh, in terms of sharing my pearls of wisdom. Uh, but there is a word from Joe Carson I'd like to share with you
1: before I come back to say goodbye. Hello. Let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia. An exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is what Drusilla Pettibone said on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I don't think I can comment on it adequately until I've had a chance to watch it a couple more times. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example... The info about hinges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. The film was obviously very beautiful, and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers... I am also so pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com)
0: I want to say thank you to joe carson for her continued support of voices of the sacred feminine over the years thank you so much joe uh, and as i close today's show i just want to remind listeners out there uh, that what we focus on uh, what we nurture that grows and what we neglect it withers and uh, with that being said if uh, voices of the sacred feminine has uh, been something that has nurtured you Uh, I get so many emails from listeners, and they warm my heart, um, saying the show keeps you sane, that it's a lifeline. Uh, If you can, I would really appreciate it if you could make a donation to help pay for airtime. Uh, And it's easy enough to do. You can do it through PayPal. Uh, You just go to my KarenTate.com website, Uh, Once you get there, go to the Goddess Store page, scroll all the way down to the very bottom, past my books, past the free meditations, uh, past uh, the uh, Goddess photographs uh, that I have for sale. And uh, there is a PayPal button at the very bottom of the Goddess Store page that enables you to make a donation of any amount uh that helps me continue my work in the world uh because uh, many of you may or may not know um I don't get paid for doing this show, and uh, none of us are getting rich (laughs) uh, being authors. Um, We do it as a service to the community because we feel like maybe we have something important to share, and that's the reason I've done this show for the last 10 years. Uh, So thank you very much, dear listeners. Um, I wish you all well. Uh, I hope you have a, a glorious spring. Uh, that you're able to stick with your resolutions and uh, your new ideas and your new authentic self uh, is springing forth and uh, and, and sprouting beautiful things. And with that said, um, I'll say goodbye for today and remind you to be back with me next Wednesday. Uh, Thank you so very much. Um, And until we meet again.